hey, welcome to First Church. It's so great to see everybody. Glad you're here with us. We have tons of people right now worshiping with us online. So if you are here in person, would you put your hands together? Welcome in our online family. Let them know we're grateful for them. Glad they're worshiping with us today. And today is Mother's Day. If you're just now finding that out, you might be in trouble, okay? Today is Mother's Day, and so we want to take some time to acknowledge our moms who are in the room or watching online today. And so, men, let me hear you. If you, are, if you want to show some appreciation for your mother, your wife, or whoever, or just any lady in the room, would you put your hands together and let's hear you. Let's show our appreciation. Yeah. And moms, we do appreciate you. And I understand that Mother's Day is an exciting day for some, but it's not an exciting day for everybody. For some people, this is a hard day, a difficult day. And we understand that, and we want to be sensitive to that. And we just want to let you know, if this is a difficult day for you for any reason whatsoever, our church is here for you, and we support you. And if you need us for anything, we want to be here to, to help you out. But we do want to acknowledge all the ladies in the room, not just our moms, but all the ladies in our room. We want to appreciate you guys all the time, but especially today, because sometimes what you do goes unnoticed. And let me give an example of this. I, somebody sent me this the other day. It was a post that was on Twitter, and a mom wrote this about her bedtime routine compared to her husband's bedtime routine. And this is what she has on here. She says, me at bedtime, remove jewelry, put up hair, wipe off makeup, wash face, moisturize, brush teeth, floss, gargle, take off contacts or take off glasses, uh, PJs, pee, use the bathroom, start load of laundry, mouth guard, check calendar, set alarm, plug in phone, worry about something dumb, pass out. My husband's bedtime routine, take off clothes, pass out. <laughs> That's about the truth of my house as well. Yeah, that's, that's how it goes exactly. So we know, ladies in the room, that you guys do a whole lot, and we want to make sure that we do appreciate you. And I know that probably most of the men have already gotten the special ladies in their lives uh, some type of gift. But if you're like me, men, I struggle to find a gift for my wife, Allison, and for my own mom because they're just hard to buy for. And I always want to get something special, and I think I've got this great gift for them. And then I give it to them, they're like, oh, thanks, you know? So it's not exactly uh, the, uh, the reaction that I expected or that I wanted. And so I'm going to help you men out today, okay? You've probably already got a gift for today, but for future reference, I'm going to have the ladies in the room vote on what they would rather have as gifts, okay? So pay attention if you're sitting next to somebody that you normally buy a gift for and even if you're not listen to the majority vote okay and so you can know what most women like so we're gonna I'm gonna put a couple gifts up here on the screen and I want to let the ladies only vote so I want you to cheer out loud hoop holler yell whatever you want to do clap let me know which you would prefer okay so for a Mother's Day gift would you rather have flowers or breakfast in bed so if you would vote for flowers let me hear you okay some all right what about breakfast in bed? Okay, just a little bit more, all right. Some of you guys are thinking it depends on who makes the breakfast in bed, right? That's, that matters, it really does. Okay, how about these next two options? Uh, clean laundry that's done and folded and put away or dishes that are washed and put up. So which would you rather have on Mother's Day? How many of you guys would vote for laundry? Okay, good number of you. What about dishes? That's about 50-50, I think. Okay, interesting. Okay, how about these next two options? Okay, would you rather have a Target gift card 
or a TJ Maxx gift card? I asked my wife this last night and she said, I can't decide. So let me see if you guys can. You gotta vote for something, okay? So how many of you guys would prefer a Target gift card? Okay, how many of you moms would prefer a TJ Maxx gift card? Okay, I think TJ Maxx won out on that one. Here's another one. How about between these two? Would you rather have, if you had a day out, would you rather have a spa day or a shopping day? So which would you prefer, spa day, shopping day? How many of you ladies would prefer a spa day? Awesome, okay. What about a shopping day, a shopping spree? I think spa may have won just a little bit. Okay, got one more, and this one is... This is a telltale sign right here, okay? Would you rather have your house cleaned or have a three-hour uninterrupted nap, okay? So which one would you pick? I know which one my wife would pick already. I didn't even ask her this one, I know. Okay, would you rather have your, if you wanna vote for your house to be clean, let me hear you. Wow, okay. What about a three-hour uninterrupted nap? You know what, my wife would vote for that. She really would, she would vote for the nap. So uh, she's not in this service, she'll be in the next service. She'll be sleeping during the sermon, I guarantee it. But, all right, well I put these up here, one, to help you guys out, to help the men in the room out. But I also put it up here for another reason, because it's an illustration about life. You guys know this, I'm not telling you anything new. Life is full of choices. Every single day, we make decisions, we make choices. Some are more weighty than others, but we make choices every single day. And some of the choices that we make, well, they can alter our lives drastically. They can alter our lives dramatically. Some of the choices that we make have huge consequences. And I dare say that one of the most important choices that we have to make as followers of Jesus every single day is whether or not we're really going to follow Jesus. Because see, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus intellectually in our minds, to acknowledge that he is Lord in our heads. It's another thing to actually live like he's Lord, to live out our faith on a daily basis. And believe it or not, that is a daily choice that we are called to make. See, accepting Jesus as Lord is not just a one-time decision that we make when we're baptized. That's the beginning of our journey with him but it is a daily choice that we make. And Jesus says this, look what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. He says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anybody wants to follow me, anybody wants to be one of my followers, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now Jesus here is not saying that our salvation is daily in jeopardy, like we choose whether or not, you know, our salvation is dependent upon the choices that we make on a daily basis. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying here that if you truly wanna live the life that he is calling you to live, you've gotta choose that life. You've gotta choose to live for him and not for yourself. It's a daily choice that we make. And here's the thing, in a culture, that is trending in the direction away from God, it's becoming more and more challenging to actually live out our faith. Because we're living in a day and age where we increasingly, as followers of Jesus, feel like the minority in our culture. Our culture is pushing Jesus to the margins. And in such a culture, it's difficult sometimes to make the choice to actually live out our faith. I was having a conversation before COVID with Matt Thomason, who's our executive minister here. And we were talking about the culture that we live in and all that. And Matt looked at me and he said, you know, Chad, 
we're not the home team anymore. And that really hit me hard. It was a sports analogy, so I got it right away. But it hit me really hard because he's right. There was a day in our country when followers of Jesus, Christians, we were the home team. But we're not anymore. Our culture is pushing Jesus to the margins on a regular basis. And in such a culture, it's easy not to live out our faith like we should and instead just kind of live a Christian-ish life. Now, what do I mean by Christian-ish? Well, ish is a suffix that means kind of, sort of, or somewhat like. So living Christian-ish means that you're kind of a Christian. You sort of live the Christian life when you want to, when it's comfortable to do so. You live like a follower of Jesus at times, but not all the time. Let me define it like this. Christian-ish is following Jesus when it's convenient, rather than following Jesus out of conviction. And in a culture like the one we live in, that's easy to do. Let me illustrate Christian-ish like this. You guys may not be aware of this, but I'm a huge Kentucky Wildcats fan. Uh, I cheer for Kentucky in all sports. In fact, I was watching Kentucky play baseball yesterday on TV, and we're not a baseball family, but yet I was watching Kentucky play because I cheer for them in every sport possible. And so you guys may not know that, but I am. My brother, however, you may not know this. I have a younger brother's name's Philip. Philip is not a Kentucky fan. He grew up in Kentucky, but for some reason he became a Florida Gators fan. Have no idea why. He's weird, but he became a Florida Gators fan. And so he rubs it in every time that we play, especially Florida beats us in football or whatever. Normally in basketball, we beat them, but they beat us in football. And so we give each other a hard time. And one, one time when I was in high school, we had the chance, he and I, to go to the Florida-Kentucky basketball game at Rupp Arena. Kentucky's the home team. We get to go watch them play, and we were pumped. And I knew it was going to be a lot of fun, especially going with him being a Florida fan. And he said, I'm going to wear my Florida gear, and I'm going to wear it proudly. And he was all about that. So he put on a Florida shirt, you know, and he was ready to go stand up and cheer for Florida. And we went to the game. He wore his Florida shirt in. And every time Florida did something great, you know, he's standing up and cheering while all the UK fans are still sitting down. You know, he's being obnoxious about it because that's just the type of brother he is, okay? So God love him. But I can say that. He's my brother, okay? So he's, just, he's cheering for Florida the entire time. And then Kentucky started to come back in the game, and we ended up winning the game at a buzzer shot. Tayshawn Prince hit a buzzer shot, and it was awesome, and the crowd went crazy. And then all these Kentucky fans sitting around my brother Philip started to say things to him. Now, they were nice because they're from Kentucky, but still, they were saying things to him and giving him a hard time about it. And as we left the arena, this is what he did. He brought a jacket with him, and I didn't say anything at first, but he put his jacket on, which didn't have any team identified on it whatsoever, and he kind of, you know, just zipped it up like this and walked around, and I looked at him, and I said, Philip, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's kind of chilly outside. I was like, no, it's not. No, it's not at all. What are you doing? And he walked around with his jacket on, covering up his Florida gear. And you know, now, he will deny that that happened if you ask him, but it did, I promise you, and you can trust me, okay? He's not here to defend himself, but it did happen. And isn't that sometimes how we live as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Hey, I'm in church, and yeah, I'm gonna show my Jesus, and I'm gonna wear him proudly, and yeah, way maker Jesus, you're the one, we love you, and then we go to work the next day, and it's real easy just to go, whoop. I'm gonna blend in with everybody else. 
Or maybe we come to Wednesday night Bible study, or maybe you meet with your small group, or you're around your Christian friends, and yeah, you, hey, yeah, go Jesus, yeah, we love Jesus. But then you get around those friends that aren't, and it's real easy to just zip it right back up. Christian-ish. You're a Christian when you want to be. You act like a follower of Jesus when it's convenient, but not all the time. And we've probably all done that, myself included. And in such a culture, we need to ask ourselves the question on a regular basis, do we proudly bear the name of Christ when it's convenient, but cover him up when it's not? Because it seems easier just to cover him up when, when we don't feel like displaying our faith. But even though it seems easier, it's really not. Even though living Christianists might seem easier, it's ultimately an empty way of life because we end up denying ourselves the true identity and the true purpose that God wants us to have. And that's why in this series, we're looking at a little book, a little letter that is tucked at the end of the New Testament called 1 Peter because Peter is writing to a group of Christians who lived just a few decades after Jesus ascended into heaven who were starting to live a Christian-ish life. And he writes to them in order to make them aware of what they're doing, but also show them how to really live out their faith. And I think what Peter says to these early Christians is extremely relevant for us today because we're not the first generation of the church to ever be tempted to live a Christian-ish life. And so as Peter writes this letter, what we, what we need to know is the historical context here. Nero is the emperor of Rome. And so Nero reigned from the years 54 to 68 AD. And at first, everything was okay at the beginning of Nero's reign for the Christians. It wasn't great, but it was okay. But by the end of his reign, Nero became more and more suspicious of the church, more and more suspicious of Christians. Because you see, the Christian movement was expanding and growing by leaps and bounds. And so this made the Roman government a little bit nervous because they didn't have any control over it. And they didn't like the fact that this movement was gaining such momentum. And not only that, these Christians, well, they said their king was this guy named Jesus. And the Romans didn't really like that because everybody's first allegiance was supposed to be to the Roman emperor, not to some other king. And so when the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods and refused to say that Caesar, the Roman emperor, was supreme, well, that made the Roman government even more nervous. And so Nero decided he needed to do something about these Christians. And so what he did was, well, most historians believe he set a fire in Rome. He set part of Rome on fire, historians believe, because he wanted to rebuild that part of the city anyway, and so he set it on fire, and then he blamed the Christians, said that they did it as an act of rebellion. And most historians will agree, there's no evidence the Christians did this. Nero was just blaming them because he wanted to have a reason in order to persecute them. And so he, that's what he did. He blamed the Christians, and he started rounding them up, torturing them, even killing some of them. And so the followers of Jesus living in Rome, they scattered and they went to this area known as Asia Minor in order to live. And the persecution was coming there, but it wasn't as strong there. And so just imagine this. You're a follower of Jesus. Your family has just been persecuted. You get out of Rome. You're living in Asia Minor. And you know the persecution's coming, but it's not full-blown yet. Wouldn't it be tempting now that you're living in a new area where no one knows you just to live Christian-ish? You're not denying Jesus intellectually, 
But on a daily basis, you're also not letting anybody know that he's your Lord. Well, that's exactly what's going on, and Peter becomes aware of this, and so he writes to them. He writes to them because he knows they're living in constant fear. Their future is uncertain, and their culture seems to be trending in the wrong direction. And let me ask, does that sound familiar to you? Do you know people right now who are living in constant fear? People who are afraid because their future is uncertain? People who are upset and worried because the culture seems to be trending in the wrong direction? I think that sounds a lot like our culture. Now, I'm not trying to compare our culture to Peter's day because what we're experiencing, we can't compare that to the persecution that the Christians in Peter's day experienced. I'm not trying to do that, but I think we can relate. I think we can identify because we live in a day where Christians are falsely stereotyped, villainized, and pushed to the margins of society on a regular basis. And so, in such a culture, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, Peter tells us what to do. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 4, 16. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In other words, what Peter here is saying is, if you suffer for wearing the name of Christ, if you suffer because you identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Don't shrink back. Don't hide your faith. Don't camouflage your faith. But continue to praise God that you bear that name. It's as if Peter is saying, no matter what consequences you face as a Christian, no matter what you experience, no matter what you deal with, no matter how much you have to suffer, no matter what you give up or have to sacrifice, Jesus is worth it. And in this letter that we call 1 Peter, he's going to tell us why. Because he's going to let us know that this isn't a time for us to be ashamed of our faith, but this is a time when our faith can shine. See, I hear a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus talk as if they're very concerned about how things are, but instead of like wanting to make a difference in this culture, instead they just kind of throw their hands up in frustration like, we just don't know what to do. We wish we could go back to the way things used to be. And guys, I don't see our situation right now that we're in as a problem. I see it as an incredible opportunity for us to let Jesus' light shine in a way like we never have before. And I think that's exactly the point that Peter is going to make in 1 Peter. He's going to write, I know it's bad. I know it's tough. But this is an incredible opportunity for us to show the world who our God really is. And so Peter tells us how to do that. And he starts off telling us how to do that in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. So he addresses these Christians throughout Asia Minor that he's writing to. And then this is the first point that he makes. And by the way, this, these first few lines, which are kind of lengthy, by the way, I'm going to let you know in the original language in Greek, this is one big, huge run-on sentence because that's how Peter lived. He was a guy of passion. He just takes off and he doesn't slow down. So kind of like me a little bit. Anyway, but this is how Peter starts off this letter. Are you ready? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, pay attention to this, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. <sighs> Take a breath, because Peter does, okay? Now what does Peter do right off the bat? He doesn't criticize these Christians or condemn them for being tempted to live a Christianish life. He doesn't scold them, ridicule them. You know what Peter does? He gives them a pep talk. Because he knows that when you're discouraged, what you need first is to be encouraged. In moments of despair, you need to have your head lifted. He gives them a pep talk. It's kind of like a coach who calls a timeout because the team is down. And it's not that the team needs to know another play or that you need to execute X's and O's better. It's just they're discouraged and they need their heads to look up. They need to be encouraged. They need to know that they can do it. I'm coaching right now my son Alex's soccer team, and it's a bunch of eight-year-olds, and it's organized chaos, but I love it. It's a whole lot of fun. And we had two games yesterday, and right now our team is undefeated. We're 6-0, and you know, go Owasso Wildcats. You wonder why we named our team the Wildcats. Anyway, but go Owasso Wildcats. We are 6-0, and loving it. But yesterday we played two games. First game, we, we dominated it. The second game, though, it was a little more tough. And we got down one to nothing in the first half, and our team had never been down before. We always take a lead and just run with it. And we were down one nothing, and my guys, my players, they were discouraged. And at halftime, there were a couple of them crying and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they were just all upset because they'd never been down before. And so, you know what I did? I pulled out a clipboard and said, okay, we're gonna run this play. No, that's not what I did. That, that was not the time for X's and O's. You know what that was the time for? I looked at them and I said, guys, you guys can beat this team. You guys are a good team. If we do our thing as a team, we'll win this game. You guys can do it. You have what it takes. And then I had them all slap the ground multiple times and yell out, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And at first they were like, don't give up. Don't. Eventually they got it. You know, I kept encouraging them. And eventually they were screaming, don't give up, don't give up. We got out there, we played the second half and we won three to one. Because all that team needed, all my team needed was some encouragement. They need to know that they could do it. And I think that's what Peter is writing to these Christians. He's saying, listen, I know it looks bad, but you've got what it takes. Not personally, you don't have the personal strength to endure what you're going through, but you do have something outside of yourself that will help you get through what you're facing. And Peter refers to it as this, as living hope. You have living hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And when you focus on that living hope and you let it invade your life, it will carry you through. See, Peter writes about this living hope because he knows that our faith, it isn't based on wishful thinking or nice ideas or platitudes or self-help fables. No, our faith is grounded in something that Peter witnessed with his own eyes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, if you guys don't know this, Peter was a close friend of Jesus, one of his closest friends. He walked and talked with Jesus for three years. He listened to Jesus teach. He saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle, and Peter witnessed Jesus being nailed to the cross. And not only that, while Jesus was on the cross, Peter had an experience with Jesus that he'll never forget. Because if you remember, Jesus 
predicted that Peter would deny him three times, and Peter said, oh, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. And sure enough, three times he did, and the third time happened while Jesus was hanging on the cross. And the Bible says this. It says that when Peter denied him the third time, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. He locked eyes with Peter in that moment from the cross. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Can you imagine being Peter in that moment when Jesus looked right at him and said, I told you you'd do it. But see, here's the thing. Jesus came back from the dead. On Friday, everything looked hopeless, but Sunday rolls around and Jesus defeats death. He walks out of the, of the grave. And here's the thing. When, he, when Jesus appears to Peter, he doesn't condemn Peter. He doesn't ridicule Peter. He doesn't make fun of Peter. He doesn't make Peter feel ashamed or feel bad. Instead, he restores Peter and he says, Peter, this is why all this had to happen so that I could bring hope to the world. He restores Peter, says, you can live a new life today and I want that new life to spread throughout the world so that everybody can experience it. And so when Peter is writing to these Christians, what he's letting them know is a truth that he witnessed with his own eyes. He's letting us know that our hope is alive because it's rooted in our living Savior. You see, if Jesus is dead, we have no hope. But if Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. Amen. And here's the thing about Peter. Peter wasn't writing to these Christians as one who hadn't suffered himself, as if he was off in some distant lane, and you all better endure and hang in there, you know, and he's over there living on some island paradise or something. It's not how it was working out. Peter, at this point when he writes this letter, had been arrested numerous times because of his faith. He'd been beat and flogged numerous times because of his faith. He'd been thrown in prison time and time again. And in just a little while after he writes this letter, Peter is going to die himself. He's going to be executed, crucified himself because of his faith. Peter wasn't writing as one who didn't know what suffering was all about. And let me just ask you, think about this. Do you think Peter would have continued to risk his life? Would have continued to allow himself to be beaten and flogged? Would have continued to allow himself to be arrested and thrown in prison time and time and time again if Jesus hadn't come back from the grave? Because if Jesus hadn't come back from the grave, Jesus is a fraud. Because he said he would. And if he had stayed dead, if he had stayed in the grave, you think Peter would have gone around and risked his life for this guy who was a fraud? Of course not. But the reason why Peter was one who on Good Friday was denying Jesus, but now, decades later, he's been preaching about Jesus, telling everybody about Jesus, because he saw Jesus come back from the grave. He knows where real hope lies. And he knows that nothing is beyond the restoration, the resurrection power that Jesus is offering the world. Amen. Peter knows that in Jesus he has something that this world cannot offer him. And so Jesus is worth whatever he has to give up in this world because he is something the world can't give him. And I think that's a reminder that he wants to give us, and Peter wanted to give those first century Christians. He wants to remind us, don't settle. Don't settle for what this world has to offer you. Don't give up the eternal for what's temporary. Don't settle for, don't settle for the treasures of this world because they are here one day and they're gone the very next. What the world is offering us it's so empty. It's an empty way of life. In fact, Peter says this in chapter 1. Look at what he says 
in verses 18 through 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. Peter says you are redeemed from this empty cookie cutter blah existence that was passed down from you to you from your ancestors. You are redeemed from that so that you could live eternally. You know, Easter was not too long ago. It's crazy that it's already May. It's hard for me to even wrap my mind around that, but Easter wasn't that long ago. And um, if your kids were like mine, they probably did an Easter egg hunt or two. And I heard a friend of mine tell the story that he took his kids to a local Easter egg hunt and they were hunting these eggs. And after they got done, the kids, you know, had a basket full of eggs. It was probably much more full than this one. And so they pulled out their eggs. And the, the exciting part is always to open up and see what's in the eggs, you know. And so his kids opened up their Easter eggs. And when they did, they were all empty. And it wasn't a point. It's not like, oh, well, because the tomb was empty. You know, I always as a kid, I, you know, I thought, come on, I want some candy, you know. But anyway, it wasn't a point they had forgot to put stuff in the eggs. And so these kids were opening up their eggs, very, very disappointed. And so the people who hosted the egg hunt had to apologize and get the candy out. So, but you know, when I heard that story, I thought, you know, that's how a lot of people live today. They chase after possessions and stuff and power and prestige and popularity and whatever, you name it. They chase after homes and boats and toys and all that kind of stuff that this world has to offer. And they get all these eggs in their basket. <laughs> and then at the end of their lives, they're left with nothing. Because they've chased after an empty way of life. What are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? See, the point here that Peter is trying to make is don't put your hope in temporary, dead, empty things. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. See, what he's saying here is don't trade the eternal for what's temporary. I'm sure most of you guys have probably stayed in a hotel room before. Have you ever gone to a hotel, and even though it's a nice hotel, you've walked in, you've said, you know what? I really don't like the color of the walls. And I really don't like the color of the carpets. You know what? I'm only going to be here for like three days, but I'm going to pay for somebody to come in and paint the walls and put a new carpet because I really don't like it. That, and that, this bedroom set, nah, it's not really my style. I'm going to pay for a new bedroom set. Let's get some new sheets and stuff. I want new blinds and drapes up. I want to make this feel more like me. You know, I'm going to invest all this money. You, we would never do that for a hotel room. You know why? It's temporary. We have a home that's somewhere else, Right? And that's the point here that Peter is trying to make. Now, we don't trash a hotel room, right? We don't mess it up or anything like that. We take care of it while we're there, but we know it's a temporary residence, and that's how we are to treat this life. This is a temporary residence. We take care of it. We do what God has called us to do while we are here, but we realize this is not our final home. There is an eternal home waiting for us, and we are investing our lives for that eternal home. Don't forsake what's eternal for what's temporary. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we take a long-term view rather than a short-term view. And I think that's what Peter's doing. See, on the Friday night that Jesus was crucified, he had a short-term view. His world seemed hopeless in that moment. But on Sunday, he realized what it meant to have a long-term view. That God had a bigger plan than just what he saw around him. 
And the same is true for you. If you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you're going through trials right now, I just want to let you know, as a follower of Jesus, have a long-term view. Because what you're experiencing right now, it is temporary. And God can use that to get you to a greater place in life, but also to prepare you for eternity. You see, the reality of the resurrection changes everything. And the reality is, for those of us who are in Christ, things are trending in the wrong direction. People will tell you in our culture things are trending in the wrong direction, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, things aren't trending in the wrong direction. You know why? Because heaven's waiting for us. That's better, folks. Eternity is going to be so much better for us. And even while we live in this life, God is continuing to shape and mold us so that we have a stronger, deeper, more meaningful relationship with him. Guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, as long as you keep following him, things are turning in the right direction for us because we have a living hope. And Peter reminds his readers of this as he addresses them in 1 Peter 1.1. He says, to God's elect strangers in the world. That's how he addresses them. It's not to my fellow Christians or my fellow believers or anything like that. It's to God's elect strangers in this world. Those are identity terms. The word elect here, the word elect means select or chosen. Don't get hung up on that word elect. It just means that you have a special purpose, that God is giving you a special purpose. He's assigning you a special task, calling. He's reminding these Christians, you still matter to God and God has a purpose for your life. And don't forget this, you're also a stranger, which means you're an exile. That's what that Greek word means. In other words, this isn't your home. You're just passing through. Don't get so caught up in this world that you miss eternity. That's our identity. We are one part elect, one part strangers in this world. And so Peter lets us know that we have a special purpose and that we matter to God. Don't lose sight of what you're called to do while you're here. Don't forget that you are an exile, but you are also a child of God. And so Peter says, this is the purpose why we're here, why we're suffering. I'm going to wrap up with this. He says, these have come, your trials, your sufferings have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, you know what fire does for gold? It gives it an opportunity to prove its genuineness. And when we go through trials, and when we suffer, and when we realize we're not the home team anymore, and we have to still live out our faith in the midst of all that, it gives us an, an opportunity to show the world who our God is, to prove our genuineness. It's an opportunity for God to use us. When we refuse to settle, this is what happens. When we refuse to settle, God refines our faith so that our faith becomes stronger and it will endure more and more and we're able to get through these trials that we're facing. But also, we can be homesick and happy at the same time. Meaning, yeah, it's okay to be homesick. It's okay to long for heaven, but you can still be content in this life. By happy, I don't mean that you're gonna get everything you want, but you can still be content and satisfied as you're homesick, longing for a day when there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more heartache. You can still be happy in this life while you're homesick for heaven. But then also, when, when we refuse to settle, We'll extend hope in the midst of hopelessness. We will shine our light in a way that is powerful and strong. So my challenge to you today, as we kick off this series, don't be discouraged by the present state of our world, but see it as an opportunity 
for us to put our faith on display because I believe God is positioning you right here in this moment to do great things for him in the midst of the darkness, to shine his light in the midst of the darkness that is around us. This past year has been a tough year for most of us and it's been a tough year for me as well. And I know when 2021 came around, I was just tired, kind of exhausted, worn out by everything that we'd experienced. All the changes that we've been through and the tweaks we had to make here in church as well and just all the pressure and stress and not being able to see my family who lives 12 hours away and all that, just, there's a lot. And I think my mom knew that. I never told her that, but I, you know, moms just know. <laughs> and so I went out to my mailbox this past January and there was a card in the mail my parents' return address on it. I was hoping there was money in it, but there wasn't. <laughs> it's all right. There was a note instead. And the note just said, we love you, we're praying for you, we are so thankful for your faithful service to God and the ways that you lead others into a deeper, sacred relationship with our Father. You are a blessing, don't give up. Love mom and dad. It says mom and dad, but it's my mom's handwriting, so I know she's the one that wrote it. Sometimes we just need a reminder that we're not alone, that we're doing what God wants us to do, and that we will be victorious in his son. Don't give up, but see this as an opportunity for God to work in your life in a way like he never has before. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this time that we've had to open up your word and study it. And I pray, Father, that we would not live Christian-ish lives, but that we would choose every single day to live for your son. Father, I thank you for everyone who's present here today, especially for our moms. And we just, we lift everyone up here who's listening to this message, that you can encourage them in the midst of their daily walk to be who you are calling them to be. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.